0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the second of our NAIDOC Week presentations here at the National Library. Thank you to those people who were punctual for tolerating a slightly later start. Um, The National Library is a workplace that is really proud of our Indigenous colleagues, and there's a great deal of interest from library staff in uh, showing support and interest in what they have to say. But as Stuart and I were just saying, when you work in the library, you think, oh, it's 12.30, I'd better leave my desk <laughs> and go to the presentation. You don't think it at 12.25, so thank you for your your patience. I'm Margie Byrne, and I'm the Assistant Director-General here at the library responsible for uh, reader services and Australian collections. So the Australian collections include oral history as one of the very interesting and special parts of the collection. I'll begin as is customary, as has become customary, and we should never remember that things can always change. Um, For the better, I will acknowledge that we meet on Aboriginal land and thank traditional custodians and elders past and present for caring for this beautiful country that we all now are privileged to call our home. This week is NAIDOC Week, and NAIDOC Week is a time when Australians come together to celebrate the history, culture and achievements of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. The 2017 NAIDOC theme, Our Languages Matter, showcases the unique and essential role that Indigenous languages play in cultural identity, linking people to their land and water and in the transmission of history, tradition and spirituality through story and song. And one of the important ways in which the library works to preserve the history, culture, achievements and languages of Australia's Indigenous peoples is through our Oral History and Folklore program. The library's Oral History and Folklore collection is the largest in the country and a great strength within this collection is recordings made with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And today, Ryan Stoker will be sharing with us, some of those audio recordings. Ryan joined the library in 2013 after completing university studies and working in libraries in Sydney. He came to us from UTS, the University of Technology, Sydney. Ryan began his career at the National Library digitising pictures, manuscripts, and ephemera and making them available for access online. He's also worked in a couple of the special collections branches in um, oral history and folklore and um, also in pictures and manuscripts. So he's really worked widely with a range of collection materials and like all library staff, he loves and has a passion for collections. So please welcome Ryan.
1: being a bit too tall, you've got to adjust the mic. (laughs) Well, thank you very much um, for that lovely introduction, Margie, and uh, I also pay um, my respects and acknowledge that um, we're on uh, Ngunnawal land today, and I pay my respects to elders past and present. Um, I'd also like to point out at um, at this time as well, um, being um, a collection talk and talking about uh, interviews and uh, and showing images in the past, um, that uh, there will be images and uh, voices of people who have passed away. Uh, so good afternoon and uh, welcome to uh, today's collection talk. Um, as Maggie's introduced, I'm Ryan Stoker. Um, I'm one of the librarians here at the National Library. So to tell you a bit about myself, um, uh, I, my mother's side, um, I'm descended from Wurwudgery, um people from up in the northern uh, part of uh, the central um, Orana region, New South Wales, so around Dubbo along the Macquarie River there. And uh, on my father's side, uh, Anglo-Australian. Uh, even though um, my mother's side uh, came from Wadgerie country, um, unfortunately I was born and raised in Sydney uh, and grew up uh, around uh, there and then moved here to Canberra. So today's collection talk is about our oral history and folklore collections, uh, which I think is quite uh, appropriate and quite relevant to talk about, uh, particularly with this year's theme of Our Languages Matter for Nadoc Week. Uh, I also hope not to be doing much talking today, um, rather having a nice uh, Relaxing afternoon listening to our oral history collections and uh, I do hope that uh, the selection of interviews today uh, inspires you to uh, explore our oral history collections um, and possibly as well uh, go out into uh, back home, record your own oral histories as well. So uh, to give you a brief overview of our collection, uh, the National Library has been collecting oral histories uh, since the early 1950s. Uh, Since then, our collection has uh, grown to well over uh, 48,000 hours of recordings, and we're reaching up to 50,000 hours of recordings soon, and we add about 1,300 hours' worth of recordings each year. Uh, The collection's also very diverse, uh, with interviews spanning across eminent Australians, social history, folklore, uh, and environmental sounds, either down out of the field or here at the National Library. I thought I'd show this image, um, which uh, you probably seen in the, collection, in the promotional material leading up to the event, but it sort of gives you an idea of how far we've uh, gone in terms of recording equipment today. So uh, we started off with uh, using reel-to-reel recorders, uh, those intimidating-looking boxes sitting on the top of the shelf there, uh, and uh, we moved on to uh, smaller and smaller equipment with uh, the recordings uh, using digital audio tapes, and then... Uh, More recently, uh, using electronic recorders that save directly onto hard drives. Uh, This being said, nearly all of our collection is now now in some form of digital format, um, around 90% of it. And uh, this has been through the addition of Born Digital content uh, with our latest recorders and also uh, digitising our analogue tapes as well. Uh, Early recordings in our collection came from external sources, uh, donated to the library, so similar how pictures and manuscripts are uh, collected. And, uh, but However, we did in, uh, begin our interviewing program in 1970, uh, contracting interviewers and occasionally our own staff to conduct interviews either out on the field or in our studios. And you would have seen a picture of our studio uh, pop up there a few moments ago. Uh, today, a large proportion of our interviews are now collected this way, uh, so uh, we've gone from uh, collecting donated material to uh, creating our own new um, interviews and content. Uh, we also have a very flexible arra- um, access arrangement system, um, which is quite important to point out. Uh, we're access is determined by the interviewees, and uh, this gives them the uh, security and freedom to speak freely and frankly in their interviews. Um, and I suppose it's a bit of a diclo- disclosure. Um, the interviews that we are listening to today, um, access has been granted by interviewees for public use. So the large grey box that you see up there uh, belong to Hazel Berg, so that's the grey and red box up there. Hazel de collection uh, recordings uh, form one of the largest parts of the oral history collection uh, and uh, she mainly interviewed artists, writers and other significant figures. Uh, Her recording style was quite unique uh, in that she removed herself completely from her recordings, um, letting the interviewees speak and it makes it sound like a monologue and we'll be listening to one of those in a moment. So... The interview that I'd like to share with you is um, Jack Davis' interview by Hazel Berg. So around the same time that uh, Hazel was recording oral histories, um, it was also a period of change for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Uh, we were coming up to the 1967 referendum and uh, activism for uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander rights um, uh, was sort of reaching a critical moment at that time, uh, even though we uh, have been... Uh, uh, being activists and uh, protesting and uh, pursuing uh, rights um, since quite early, from the 1910s all the way through the 30s. Uh, the most, most notable association, of course, during that period was FACATSE, um, the Federal Council of the Advancement of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, and also the state bodies, the A- Aboriginal Advancement Councils. So in 1970, Hazelberg uh, interviewed poet and playwright Jack Davis. Uh, Jack was born in Perth in 1917 and he was the fourth um, eldest in a family of ten. When his father died, uh, his family moved to the Maury River River sediment uh, north of Perth um, where uh, Jack was uh, planning to train in farm work um, when this didn't eventuate. He left for work to work in the timber mills up north and then became a truck driver for the Metropolitan uh, Water Board in Perth. So when Hazel was interviewing him, um, he had quit from the water board And worked with the Aboriginal Advancement Council um, in the 1960s, and he became the Western Western Australian State Secretary in 1969. Uh, So we'll listen to um, him sharing his thoughts with Hazel about uh, working with the Advancement Council, uh, and also um, a few recollections about um, uh, about his work.
2: The Aboriginal Advancement Council, that is the group for whom I work now (coughs) full-time, wanted somebody to (coughs) work for them in a full-time capacity and they thought that I could fit the bill. I think I have. I have worked uh, hard for them. I have suffered uh, a heart attack since I have worked for them, the pressure of work, etc. Not so much the pressure of work, but more the pressure, I think, of uh, seeing so much degradation, so much misery, so much heartbreak amongst Aborigines and not being able to get anything done constructively or quickly enough to save these people from jail, from all the things which white society do to them.
1: So, to put his words in. The aims
2: of the Aboriginal Advancement oh, Council is... Uh, so to put
1: the words into context um, the interview was conducted a few years after he became the Secretary of the Aboriginal Advancement Council um, so he's reflecting on things the, um, that he achieved in the council um, but also commenting about the amount of work that still needed to be done um, and this is also the strength of oral histories I believe um, in which um, we can capture perspectives and ideas and reflections that may not, have, um, may not be readily done so in a diary or a letter or a not um, a manuscript. Uh, so we did see a little bit of a preview of that one <laughs> when we clicked across. But uh, to contrast with Jack's interview, I'd like to play a small part of Joe McGinnis's interview with Lloyd Hollingsworth in the Bringing Them Home Oral History Project. Uh, Joe was part of the Stolen Generations, um, being removed from his mother when he was five, and he was placed in the Kalin compound in Darwin, um, and was uh, subsequently released in 1924 to live with his sister. Uh, his experience with racist policies at the time spurred him to become an activist for the rights of Aboriginal Australians. Uh, he was the President of the Federal Council of the Advancement of Aboriginal and at the time and uh, one of the key figures in uh, bringing forth the 1967 referendum. So the picture here um, comes from the Canberra Times um, and we can see Joe there uh, shaking hands with Robert Menzies. Uh, so, uh, this was taken in uh, 28th of September 1963 with the whole Focati de- delegation. Um, and we'll hear a bit um, and we'll hear a bit about Joe recounting the meeting uh, with Robert Menzies.
3: But, uh, you know, we've done unis and Tassie and all over the place. And I wasn't the only one doing it, too, you know. Kathy Walker and all them just making it aware, and, and uh, when the uh, referendum come on, well, our campaign must have been successful because it was about like 92% of the mm. population voted for yes.
4: us. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Must have done but I, I
3: think the uh, government at the time, you know, was that oh, i let them go ahead and They've been, you know, at it long enough and they won't win it anyhow, you know. And when they got 92%, they had a different thought. And <coughs> mm.
4: That was the Liberal Country Party government then, wasn't it? Eh? That was the Liberal Country Party government then?
3: Mm. Yes. I think Hulk was there and I met Mr Menzies and Pat got a watcher's there. We'll have a look at it after. You met Mr Menzies? Yeah. Not only me, but there was a deputation from all over Australia. I had photos of that. That'd be uh, the one thing you can see if you can dig up them photos out of the archives of the blooming what's this? Out of the
2: out of the institute. Huh? Out of the institute in Canberra.
3: The Times, the Canberra Times, you know. Right. Yes. Yeah. About sixty-three or something like that. Nineteen right, yeah. sixty-three. Mm-hmm. How did you
5: How did you find Menzies? Huh? How did you find Menzies?
3: Oh, I, all right then. <laughs> listen to us. Sit <laughs> you know? down a little. Kathy was going give a bit of a speech there. and heard the of the troubles of white man poisoning, beer and that, mm-hmm. took it all and when we finished our interview, oh go out into the, go out into the, onto the veranda there and have some light refreshments and he looked at old Cathy Walken and said you can have some fun uh, White man poison too, if you want to, <laughs> because you, know, you get to the trouble given the, you know.
1: So um, it's a very personal sort of recount of um, of uh, what um, particularly if you do read the article online. Um, this article is available up online in Trove. Um, it's a very dry report about uh, the meeting and uh, what happened. Um, so. In, um so probably as you could tell the interviews uh, was a lot more conversational um, compared with the earlier recording with Jack but um, also it is an opportunity to uh, hear a very raw and personal insight and a very amusing insight too um, about uh, about details that may not be reported in the newspapers or um, or from personal recounts there particularly with uh, Cath um, so, sort of telling Robert Menzies that uh, he'd get in trouble if, um, uh, well, to provide some context, um, the deputation came from Queensland, and uh, of course he would have been jailed at the at that time for offering um, alcohol to Aboriginal people. So, um, uh, so when Cath was mentioning to Menzies that he'd get in trouble with that, um, he could have possibly been arrested up there. So, um, so um, so. Particularly with um, those insights into that. Um, okay.
3: cool.
1: uh, so, an important aspect of our collection is that our interviews are whole of life, uh, meaning that we usually conduct these interviews towards the end of a person's career. Um, and you heard that with uh, Joe as well. Uh, naturally, being a whole of life interview, these um, recordings can take anywhere up to five hours, even more, of recording time. So, uh, to keep in the theme of activism, um, considering that's the anniversary of the 67 referendum and uh, 25 years after the Mabo case, we um, would uh, listen to Pat Turner's interview with Nikki Henningham. Uh, this interview was conducted as part of the Women in Leadership um, in a Century of Australian Democracy Oral History
6: Project. By joining government? By helping, them, helping to implement policy that could be rolled out to help people? Or did you, did you think... Yeah, I mean, your. How did you come upon the idea that the way you could help best would be by working <coughs> with government?
5: Well, of course, when I first went home, and I worked in the Department of Interior and then in the Department of the Northern Territory after little was elected, mm. and um, um, I felt. And I, then I left because. My colleagues weren't, you know, happy with um, me not um, doing more work for them, I suppose. Yes, that's what it sounds like. Uh, well, that's what it sounded like to me. And, um, uh, and I felt that they could have done a lot more work with community engagement and not be stuck in the old, you know, one-on-one counselling, putting a Band-Aid on a problem... Whereas I was more of a community development activist type too. You know, yeah. I wanted things to change in the environment.
6: Yeah, you sort of can... It's, it sounds so that in, in that sort of social work sense, you're actually... You seem to be more interested in the policies that can change things as opposed to that casework
5: yeah. and that stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, well, the, the practices that can change things... Yes, yeah. ..was really what I was more interested in that stage. Doing things yeah. differently. Yeah. Um... You know, to, and raising awareness. Yeah. So I was a great, I was a great fan of uh, Paulo Ferreri yeah. and Pedagogy of the Oppressed, you know, and I found that that was illuminating to take the resource to where the people are and start with where the people were at and, you know, bilingual, bicultural education, you know. That would have been really inspirational. It was yeah, for me. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just thought all of this stuff was worth, you know, thing. And it was funny because, you know, I mean, I would get um, tips from colleagues who were working in other organisations about, you know, reading more um, inspiring uh, social action mm, material, mm. you know. But a lot of it I sorted out, and we didn't have the internet and whatever in those days. I can tell you, it was word of mouth or letters or, you know.
6: Yeah, well, that's right. That's what I was trying. I was trying to. I was trying to get my head around how you would have come up with the, the idea of actually implementing these practices. You know, the and so you've explained some of the reading that you were doing. But were there were there and you mentioned um, the civil rights. You know, inspiration through civil rights and 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 I guess and women's liberation and so on. Were there other people or other books that you were reading that really were sort of nourishing you and giving you that sort of inspiration?
5: Well, later there were. I was doing a lot of that. I mean, I followed the civil rights movement very, very closely, um, as much as I could get any material on. Mm. I also followed, um, you know, what Uncle Charlie was doing in Australia Mm. in speaking out for Aborigines. And... um, and so you know it was just a swirl um, of the need to get things done. Uh, there had been the establishment of the Aboriginal Medical Service in Redfern mm, mm. in um, Sydney, and um, and I saw real benefit in the community controlled community based model because our people just were not getting access to the range of services that the rest of the Australian community took for granted Mm, mm. you know there was still in the 70s you know blatant racism and discrimination against Aboriginal people accessing services Mm,
1: mm.
5: you know I mean it wasn't that long ago that an Aboriginal person an Aboriginal woman could walk into a dress shop in outback western New South Wales and try on a dress Mm. yeah you know I mean, they were literally frowned upon for even daring to walk into a shop, Mm -hmm. you know. And see, I knew all these stories and how things... I mean, you know, I'd go home after after school holidays and and whatever, right? And I'd say, let's go in here and have a cappuccino. Oh, no, you can't go in there. I'd say, why not? Oh, no, many white people go in there. Bugger the bloody white people. Our money's just as good as theirs. Let's go. I drag them in.
4: God.
5: You know? I never had... You know why? Because I was Arenda. My grandmother was a very important and highly respected woman. Mm. My father was Arenda. I knew who I was. And I knew who my people were. Yeah. So, I kidding? was absolutely grounded in my identity, mm-hmm. and this and we were on Ar land. Yeah. you know So that was my country.
6: Yeah
5: uh, that always yeah. has been.
1: So um as you heard in their interview, um she uh, had a very strong sense of identity um, and constant source of strength when uh, facing the challenge of changing the Australian public services. Uh, way of thinking about the administration of Aboriginal affairs at the time during the 1980s. Um, Pat was a very Pat Turner was a very influential figure in the public service and uh, a very strong activist too and amongst other things she was a very influential figure um, in the service. Um, also became the CEO of uh, the National um, Indigenous Television Service um, from 2006 to 2010 and also had a brief stint as the uh, festival director of the fifth um, Festival of Pacific uh, Arts in Townsville in Queensland. So worked in for, for a very large variety of uh, different roles and uh, and uh, also as she mentioned um, also uh, related to Charlie Perkins another activist and she did um, was quite inspired by him particularly in terms of her activist work uh, and also um, you do hear sort of uh, quite a, a lot of passion in the voice and um, and a very strong sense of feeling which uh, of course you can't get in, uh, in, in written form so I uh, it is a good example of, um, of uh, um, sort of that additional in, um, sort of information that you can get from an oral history um, that you wouldn't otherwise get in written form. So in addition to uh, these whole-of-life interviews, um, we also have interviews focusing on certain themes. Um, so as we heard with Pat Turner, um, her interview was part of a project for focusing on women and leadership. Uh, We have other interviews covering a whole range of social topics, um, as the following interview which we'll be hearing, um, which is about Indigenous indigenous ex-servicemen and women.
7: I've got a fly to Sydney on whatever the date was, 18th of October 1961 or something. So the day I joined the army, I joined the army with another Perth girl who was escaping alcoholic parents.
4: Aboriginal or non-Aboriginal?
7: Both non-Aboriginal. And another young, non-Aboriginal girl who just wanted a bit of adventure. And twins. whose father was a policeman, a sergeant at Collie. Was the Army
4: actively recruiting a lot of women at this stage?
7: Yeah, the Women's Royal Australian Army Corps. So um, I'm still friends with them all, all these years later. And uh, I see the twins on Anzac Day. One marches and one doesn't. Isn't that funny? So... Off we went on this great adventure and Sister Kate reluctantly took me to the airport. i have never been on a plane. I didn't even know where Sydney was. And we were all frightened. We had our worldly possessions in our suitcase and we were put on this plane to Sydney by the army and met by the army. And then the yelling and jumping around started at Middlehead in Mossman in New South Wales, prime real estate now. And um, I didn't find it difficult because I'd been brought up in an institution and you get six weeks when you first joined the army if they liked you or you didn't like them you could go and no one was you know, to suffer and I just found it rather good because the meals weren't bad they paid me they gave me a uniform the girls were okay they were just like kids from Sister Kate's and um, in the six weeks we were there three or four girls went home because they couldn't handle it but my mate Lynn and I, uh, because we both had office backgrounds, the army asks you, where would you like to go? What are these choices? But you don't actually get a choice. They just send you anyway. But it looks nice that you ask, you make a decision. <laughs> so we got sent to signals in Victoria, which was then called 403 SIG Regiment. So. You've got to stop me if you're asking the your next question. Well, I was
4: actually going to ask you can you tell me a bit more about the training? Because I'm curious what sort of training the women received as okay. opposed to training that men would have received.
7: Okay, so we had six weeks training at Middlehead in Mossman in New South Wales. We learned how to march. We learned how to salute the goalpost um, because you have to practice saluting. Uh, you learned the army history, military history. Um, you learned how to spit and polish your shoes. You learned how to do heavy domestic work. Well, that wasn't anything new. I'd already done that. Um, and domestic you...
5: work for the army, like sewing uniforms. And no, the... no,
7: cleaning. Cleaning, cleaning, cooking, those sort of things. But because, and then you learned all about the facts of life. Yeah. <laughs> so, um...
1: <laughs> so. <laughs> Well, we can play play the full interview a bit later if you want to hear all the uh, juicy details. And this one is up online, so um, if you wanted to hear about the the full details, you're more than welcome to do so. Um, So the interview that we did here there was of Sue Gordon talking about her training in the Army. Uh, She was born in 1944 at Bell Station, Western Australia, and uh, was separated from her mother when she was four and raised at Sister Kate's home, like she mentioned. Um, When she left school there, she joined the Australian Defence Force and worked for the Signals Division between 1961 and 1964. Uh, after a career in the army, she uh, worked for many administrative positions, uh, most notably in the Pilbara region, um, in Aboriginal affairs. And amongst any, uh, many things, she was also the first Aboriginal person to head a government department and the first Aboriginal magistrate uh, in uh, Western Australia. Uh, so our collection not only records um, interviews with these eminent Australians, but also recording the experience and memories of people who share a particular background or experience. Uh, these interviews are about covering significant social trends um, and conditions in Australia. Uh, so the, one of the most well-known um, of these projects, um, particularly with our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, is the Bring Them Home Report, and that's the front cover of the report there. Uh, so the project was undertaken in response to the um, Bring Them Home Report um, in December 1997, and the project ran from 1998 to 2002 and recorded the experiences and stories of Uh, not only people uh, who were affected by the process of child removals, but also people involved with it, so uh, managers out on the reserves, police officers, social workers. So first the project started off with a pilot of 30 interviews, um, but by the end we recorded more than 330 stories, uh, many of which are now online, and they're um, also shared through um, our book Many Voices. Uh, Unfortunately it's out of print, but... um, you may be able to find a copy and it also comes with a little CD where you can um, listen to the interviews that are featured in the book. Uh, also in 2008, uh, after the Apology to Stolen Generations, we revisited some of the people that were uh, interviewed in this project uh, and uh, that formed uh, the uh, "Bringing Them Home After the Apology project. Uh, and it mainly focused on people sharing their uh, views of uh, the apology um, and their opinions of that. Um, Another project worth mentioning as well, which is uh, still ongoing, is the uh, Seven Years On project. Uh, It began in 1995 and uh, follows the life histories of Aboriginal leaders every seven years. Uh, The aim there is to capture the views, opinions, uh, current work and um, expectations of our our elders. Um, And this is still ongoing. Um, uh, I had a little look on the catalogue yesterday and I did notice that there was one interview that popped up um, which was recorded uh, this year. So it is um, still ongoing and uh, we're still uh, keeping in touch with those people and uh, hearing their stories. Uh, we also have um, other small collections as well focusing on activists for Indigenous rights um, as well as the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation and also community leaders in Arlen Land. Uh, and as well, there are other recordings also peppered throughout um, in our folklore recordings of uh, musicians, and uh, we'll be hearing a few of those at the moment, particularly um, a few recordings from the, um, from the Bring Them Home project as well. So um, getting back to um, Margie's introduction and our theme this year of Our, our Languages Matter, um, I'd like to share with you um, three small uh, snippets from uh, three very separate interviews in our collection um, where our language is spoken. Um, as some of you, um, so the other thing with oral history is that um, it is uh, one of our oldest forms of sharing knowledge and, uh, uh, and sharing language, and particularly for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, um, it is very important um, in terms of sharing um, culture, uh, language, songs. So, um, and, and of course this is why we're celebrating NAIDOC Week um, this year with the theme of Our Languages Matter. So um, if you attended Shannon's talk earlier in the week, um, Shannon covered our uh, manuscripts collections and the uh, many language materials that we do have in that uh, particular collection. Uh, Whilst language lists notes inscribed in the diary or uh, otherwise provide a good starting block for uh, reintroducing languages and learning about language, um, you do lose the ability of um, understanding how words sound, either through um, them not being listed phonetically or... Um, or through European interpretations of it. So uh, having oral histories where people are speaking language is, um, I believe, definitely quite important, um, particularly that it's from people who may not be using it every day, but um, do use the language and uh, definitely have an opportunity to hear how things are pronounced. So um, definitely I might be preaching to the converted there. (laughs) Um, So... uh, uh, similar to manuscripts, as I mentioned, um, uh, these tend to be sort of peppered throughout um, the different interviews. Um, the three interviews that I will be showing, uh, one's from the Bringing Them Home After the Apology Project um, and one from the Bringing Them Home Oral History Project and another one from uh, uh, Rob Willis's Folklore Collection, which forms another big part of, um, of our collections here at the library. So the first one I thought I'd start off with is uh, with Roy Barker um, and he was interviewed by Rob Willis. Mm-hmm. So in this snippet, Roy shares some of his song, um, some songs with Rob um, in his language. Um, unfortunately, the catalogue doesn't spe- um, specifically specify what language it is, um, but uh, he was um, living out at uh, Bawarina and Lightning Ridge at the time, so it's possibly Camilla Roy. But uh, if any of you are uh, a linguist expert in the audience here, um, definitely if you can pick it up and you do know the language, do let us know. It would be uh, great to update the catalogue record with that and identify what language it is.
8: Forever, and this this is what applied to these ancient Aboriginal songs <laughs> that were sung. In my view, did Janet Matthews record any of those from your dad? Do you know? Um, I'm not. I'm not Gordon? too sure. Well, he did. He did, uh, he did uh, sing some songs. Yeah, he recorded a few Aboriginal songs. Yeah, oh, he must,
4: must go back and visit those tapes. Again. Yeah. no
8: he's, he he did. Yeah, and uh, he. Um, he translates the tape of those songs into English, which are very good. And uh, I'm not too sure how many songs he sang, but, uh, you know, we picked up a few of the songs that uh, these guys used to sing, did you? Mm, yeah. And, um, but, uh, you know, just uh, spasmodically, I suppose, if that's the word, that. Forget some of the words, and uh, you know, you knew the tunes and things like that. But uh, could you give us one of those, or it wouldn't be appropriate? Uh, well, uh, one goes, Ya Golamandi, Buddha Um, um Um, and the, the words in English if, uh, if you see uh, Bhuthana, that's the tribal name of the girl tell her that I love her and uh, so um <laughs> uh, that was one that we knew you know a little bit of it and uh, the tune was <coughs> it certainly had a tune to those to those songs oh yeah and uh, things like that and um, uh, I'd have to uh, you know, try and record one yourself somewhere on the other and be able yes. to fill it out. Please. Yeah. And, uh, yes. and uh, you know, you're not too sure of the words and uh, uh, things like that. And, um, mm-hmm. But we knew a few uh, words that uh, um, picked up sentences, you know, from these.
1: So, um,. Roy uh, Barker was an elder in the uh, Koori community in far western New South Wales. Um, as mentioned, he was uh, uh, raised on Bumara in and mission, um, and he now lives in Lightning Ridge. Um, he's established himself as well as a um, maker of traditional Indigenous weapons and uh, <coughs> conducts a tourist complex out there, uh, sharing culture and, uh, and, in the interview with Rob, language as well and songs. Uh, the next one um, I'd like to share um, is also by, with Rob Willis, um, Harold Cole, um, and that's in Rob Willis' folklore collection. Uh, so uh, Harold talks um, in Wawadry, um and he also shares with Rob um, his opinions on the loss of language and uh, a few words that have been retained, um, and uh, he speaks them in Wawadri and provides an English translation too
4: i I think we had a role to play in the loss of it too, I think Rob I think somewhere down the line you know it just um, it, it faded out i mean we uh, I think even some of us can sit back and 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 um, you know use some of the words, you know, but not to be able to do full sentences or have a conversation in their language, and I think that's basically. What we would love to be able to do is to sit down and have a full conversation in our own, you know, our own language. But I uh, hope okay, we, we, we've maintained certain words. Um, you know, we've got our own uh, words for the police, uh, for white people. Um, could, could I ask you what that was? The police. Um, what do we call them? There's a couple of uh, the Gunyans. Ganyans. We call them the Gunyans. Uh, some parts of the Arachary County called Barabad Island. Um, what else have we got? Of course, there's the, the word for white follower at the, Gaba. Gaba. Yeah, the Gaba and uh, That's quite common. Or, or yeah, in, right, across, here, right, right across. Right across here. Uh, for women, um, what are they, Balangs, uh, kids, burroys. Yeah, what else have we got? Yeah, a lo- lot of the words. Uh, dogs, uh, Meriga. Um, bura. Yeah, telling lies, Borah. <laughs> it's an interesting one. I've, I've copped that from a couple of them, yeah. uh, describing certain people. Yeah. And it, it's, not as, it's sort of been a, a bit of a storyteller yeah. sometimes. Yeah, oh, yeah. Was, we've got a lot of storytellers in our, in our midst, yeah. <laughs> tell a lot of Borahs, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or Yarble. Yarble, liar. That's the same thing, Yarble. Yeah. yeah if someone wants to say anything and you say Yarble, that means oh, you're telling lies, Yeah. <laughs> You know, don't yarm or don't lie. Same thing here. Buru, telling yeah. yeah. and and some of those words, like in your, well, gen- a lot of the words, your yeah. general conversation, so that you, there mm. was a, there was a like a, a language within that that area. Yeah, I mean, there'd be a lot of things that you could say that the white fellow wouldn't. Understand. You wouldn't understand. Yeah, yeah. That, that that's right. There is, and uh, um, yeah, you need to be careful though because <laughs> you, you can do that. There's nothing more irritating than... uh, Even today when we sit down in, say, in the middle of Sydney and you, you know, um, say some of the Asians are talking in their language and you you don't know whether they're sitting there talking about you or why they're saying anything about you. But the same thing could be said for some of our people sitting there talking about that. Yeah, you need to be careful. I think it's got to do with respect. But, uh, I mean, the days... It's still... still I I, I think it's important that that some of these... This this unique... It would be terrific to resurrect it to, to be able to resurrect People the language, segments of, it, yes. segments of it. And even we get back to a situation where we sit down among yes. ourselves and have a decent conversation in, in our own language, and that would be terrific. And I know that in a lot of parts of the country they're doing that. Um, and as I mentioned to you before there, Rob, uh, a good friend of mine, Greg McKellar out of Burke, has sort of started a campaign in resurrecting uh, the language. What's, in, is, is that in, in, a Wiradjuri... Uh, no, no, Burke. I'm, um, no, look, I was going to say it's a little bit far yeah, out. Yeah, it's a bit too far mm-hmm. out. I'm uh, 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 showing my ignorance now, not knowing what that region yeah. is. But, no, uh, it's all right. I'll, 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 he, I've got him. And, and he's developed it such a way now that they can actually go in and teach it in schools and uh, broadcast it across the Indigenous radio network that they've got mm-hmm. in Burke's: so. I
8: think Stan Grant's been coming up. I
4: think Stan's done a a lot of work, a lot of work in the Erasbury region. Um, And um, his brother, poor old Cecil, Pastor Cecil Grant has passed Mm on. He's he's, he's, actually come from Conda And he was um, instrumental in um, getting Stan to go and do a lot of that. And Stan's done some terrific work. And as I understand it, uh, Stan's doing a pretty good job. Yeah, in the region. Yeah, he's
8: doing the schools here. And and,
4: and and that's and that's another reason uh, I got onto this project. And that's terrific to see. Yeah. Dan's doing is, a terrific uh, job. I rang him and he was most encouraging yeah, about uh, he's doing a good job what saying. was going on. Talking about religion, I want
1: So um I'll
4: keep you from much yeah.
1: Sorry, I'm having a bit of trouble with technology today. <laughs> um but uh, Harrell, um was also um, one of the residents of the Murray, um, an Indigenous French gentleman near um, Knoblin in New South Wales. Um, and it was one of the last self-managed reserves in New South Wales. Um, and uh, Rob had a particularly small project in focusing on uh, residents from the area during that time. And Harold was one of those people that was interviewed in there. Um, so finally, the last one I'd like to share with you um, in terms of languages is um, Rita Boxer, um, who's interviewed by David Woodgate in the Bring Them Home oral history project. Um, Rita was one of the, um, was also one of the part of the stolen generations, being removed with her younger brother, um, with a younger brother and sister, um, to the Knibbler Lutheran in South Australia. Uh, she shares with um, David um, some words in uh, Gaganda. Uh, uh, Guganda, sorry, I might have uh, mispronounced that. Um, and David also speaks back to her in um, Pijinara. Um, and also, um, sort of, I suppose, in terms of um, the effects of stolen generations being removed, um, Rita does share some thoughts about um, um, about culture and uh, sort of that interruption between um, her mother teaching her about um, about um, her culture and uh, language.
2: Just resuming the interview with Andy Rita. Um, did you your language? Did you know any of your language, and what was it? Gurubha. Yeah. yeah. And you could speak this.
7: Not M- much. No. Long time ago, we used to. You know, when kids talk that language.
3: And you learned it from. Mum. Yeah. Panya.
0: Panya. 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 Good. Baila. Yeah. Baila.
2: Good. In Pichinjarra too, in oh. Yudhubay, I
7: don't know if Pichinjarra, I am them and yeah. cook it away up that way by yeah. Her. Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Ah, that's good. Yeah. Mm. What about any of your your mother's culture? Any things did she pass on
4: to you?
0: Nothing, nothing at all.
7: I often sit and think about them things to myself and talk.
1: So, um, it's three very different interviews there, um, and, uh, across a wide, wide range there, um, but also, as you heard, um, even though despite, uh, language being lost and culture being lost, um, uh, particularly with, uh, Harold's talking with, uh, Rob, uh, there is a huge push and, uh, to sort of reintroduce languages back into communities and, uh, and, uh, teach that language back to, um, younger generations and, uh, Bring that back into um, into communities and um, and not just for Aboriginal people, but also for, for non-Aboriginal people as well. So um, I do hope that today's collection talk uh, does um, inspire you to uh, go uh, downstairs to our special collections reading room and listen to some of our oral histories there, or uh, also go home and uh, listen to them online. Um, as I mentioned with Sue Gordon's interview, um, I do know a few people wanted to hear a few more details about that one. Um, These are all available online or you can request them um, if you're a registered member of the library. Um, For those of you that uh, like to undertake your own recordings, there are a number of places you can go to um, uh, to um, to contact and uh, learn more about uh, undertaking your own oral histories. Uh, one of them uh, up on the board here is the Oral History um, Australia, um, which provides great advice on how to conduct oral histories. Uh, they also provide details on courses offered at Australian universities and vocational training centres. Uh, to, lastly, to bring today's talk uh, full circle, um, I'll sort of end where we started with Jack Davis. Uh, and he has some wide words to part, um, particularly in regards to um, the last recordings we heard
2: I have a feeling, I think, a great feeling for Aboriginal culture and when we're talking in terms of Aboriginal culture I'm talking in terms of Aboriginal song, Aboriginal rhythm which isn't really Aboriginal poetry because the Aborigines did have poetry in the prose form, their dances, the skills which many are fast losing right throughout the land and I have a feeling that if we don't do something about this we can lose all of it. Tapes are useless. I think these must be handed down and must be learnt in schools uh, that white kids and Aboriginal kids must participate in the dances and in the songing and in the miming so that it can be carried on. Now this is done in New Zealand in fact in New Zealand you can get a thesis just by learning a Maori language but uh, white authority in Australia has degraded the Aborigines to such an extent that he has told him that to be a blackfellow is the lowest thing on earth and you must forget your own language and this is exactly what has happened in a lot of, lot of uh, cases in Australia and what organisations such as mine and the Federal Council for Aborigines, Torres Strait Islanders is we want to say what we can of what culture is left and see that it is carried on and taught into schools where it can be learnt, studied, understood by white and black children in Australia.
1: And um, uh, to provide context again, that recording was done back in the 1970s, and uh, fortunately we do have uh, a lot of uh, places, uh, uh, communities and lands councils that are uh, focusing on their own languages in their own areas, and uh, also national um, uh, groups as well, such as First Languages Australia. Uh, uh, The uh, group here, works on various projects to reintroduce and uh, promote first languages back into um, our local communities and uh, I definitely encourage you to um, pop on their website and have a check um, at what projects they're doing um, and also if you've come from an estate or even here in Canberra um, you can have a check on the, on the map there and uh, check to see if there's a local project going on in your area and uh, getting involved in that. So um, with that, um, that concludes today's talk um, and thank you very much for uh, coming out um, and definitely if you did have any questions um, or that, feel free to come up to the front and we can have a chat and definitely. but um, And of course, have a listen to our oral history interviews in the library. They are fantastic and um, wonderful resources, um, definitely. So I hope you have a wonderful uh, rest of NADOC week and um, do hope to see you at our next coming events around the area here. Thank you.